Welcome to SLP Learning Series, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech-language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guest who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Welcome to Season 6, Ease into AAC. As a global leader in assistive communication, Toby Dynavox understands how overwhelming it can be for families, users, and even seasoned clinicians to take on the challenges of identifying and funding an assistive communication device. We are eager to support speech-language pathologists and other professionals in assessing and implementing AAC solutions for their clients. Our website, tobydynavox.com, and our free learning hub, learn.tobydynavox.com, are full of therapy materials, classroom resources and curriculum, and hardware and software trainings to help our customers embrace AAC with confidence. Additionally, the Toby Dynavox for Professionals program allows you to register for free versions of our software to use with clients. Welcome to the podcast mini-series, Ease Into AAC, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Thanks for joining us for our fourth episode, Back to School. This is a a six-part series, so this is our fourth episode, and we've got a couple left, which is very exciting. This audio course is offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. I am your host, Kate Thompson, and I am a certified practicing speech pathologist from Australia. Recently, I realized I probably sound really weird to you guys with my accent. And so if if that's the case and something doesn't quite make sense, please just let me know. (laughs) I've been working with people using AAC for the past 10 years, and it's an area that I'm incredibly passionate about. As your host of the podcast, I do receive compensation from Speech Therapy PD, but I have no other financial or non-financial relationships to disclose. Today, we are joined by Dr. Sherry Dodge, who is an assistive technology consultant, adjunct professor, and published researcher. Prior to her position in assistive technology, she worked for 20 years as a speech-language pathologist in pediatric private practice, rehabilitation clinics, and schools. Dr. Dodge has a clinical doctorate in speech pathology and is currently studying for her Doctor of Education degree with a focus on AAC. It's a very busy lady. She receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com as well for joining us today, but has no other financial or non-financial relationships to disclose. Before we get started in today's episode, just a reminder that we love and encourage questions. Um, so please through, shoot through any questions that you have into the chat and we'll do our best to answer them today. If you have any other questions that come up after today or, or during your week when you're thinking about it, feel free to email me directly. And my email address is Kate, K-A-T-E, at speechease, S-P-E-E-C-H, 
ease.net.au. So let's jump into the topic of today, back to school, where we'll be talking all things AAC in schools. So how to implement AAC, how to support teachers to model AAC, and what clinicians can do to work with schools and families effectively. So welcome, Dr. Dudge. Would you like me to call you Sheree during this, Sherry? Sheree, sure. You can call me Sheree. That's great. Sheree, sure. Awesome. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us. And I would love to hear some more about your story. So can you tell us about how you got to where you are today? Oh, it's kind of a a longish story. So I was in second grade, I was going to be a teacher for individuals who were deaf and hard of hearing. And then of course I changed my mind when I got older and I was going to be a marine biologist. And then I got to college and I still studied biology, but I was like, yeah, I don't know about this whole marine biology thing. Maybe I'll go into teaching. So my first job outside of after my college experience was as a high school biology teacher. I did not enjoy it at all. And I was like, what else can I do? I need something else to do. And my mom said, well, what about speech therapy? And I said, I don't know. Well, I kind of know what that is because my father, when I was 19, almost 19 years old, had um, a massive stroke and it left his communication permanently impaired for that. He survived for 20 more years, but he never regained his communication, his verbal communication skills. And so I was like, okay, well, sure, I'll try that out. So, so I went back to school and I got my master's. And then I got a job and I was working with individuals who were switch users and like mid-tech single, single button, you know, users. And this, you know, I had graduated in December of 2000. So there was no AAC course out there. Like I didn't know what this was. I didn't even know what these switches were. Like I was so confused and I was like, what am I missing? And I felt like, and you couldn't just go online and look things up, right? This was like dinosaur age, you know, like maybe we had some email, but I think you could only email people from your own like institution. So I was kind of looking around and I got some recommendations and I ended up moving across to the other side of the country to do a one a nine-month fellowship with a prominent AAC researcher here in Portland, Oregon, where I still live now, 20 plus years later. And that kind of set me on my my journey working with AAC. And in that nine or 10-month fellowship, after that was done, I decided I really actually wanted to go to my surprise, to my shock. I wanted to go back in the schools. And I ended up primarily back in the schools. And I've done lots of things on the side where I was doing private practice or doing some rehab and things like that. But I've always been employed full time by a school district since since that point. Oh, wow. And has that always been in Oregon? So my first, my very first part of my career was that was when I was still um, on the East Coast. And that's where I realized that I didn't know what a switch was. And I never heard of the term augmentative communication. So I was in New England at that time. And then I moved to Oregon for the fellowship. And then I stayed in and I stayed in the schools in Oregon at that point as well. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to think that way back then for you, the assistive technology and the information we had about AAC was so little. And that's how I felt 10 years ago. And it's still how I feel today that we're still learning so, so much. And there's still so much 
technology coming out all the time that is advancing AAC and and making it incredible for people with complex communication needs. We've come so far, but still so much to learn and to to go through moving forward as well. Yes. And now, you know, back then you were saying you might have been able to email people from your institution and now look at us. We're chatting over Zoom from Australia and America. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. I remember when I first got, when I first even heard about email, I was in college. First time I heard of email and I think it wasn't even email. It was like messaging and you could only message people in your dorm. So you physically had to be in the same building as this person in order to message them. That's what I recall. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. (laughs) All right. So I'm not sure about in the States and if it's anything like Australia, we find it quite tricky to implement AAC within the school system. So we have it very set up where you've got speech pathologists that work within schools and then speech pathologists that work within the community. And both are stretched. They both have huge caseloads, huge wait lists, and it is hard to get that collaboration. And not all students in schools are being seen by speech pathologists. So we do private speech pathologists or community-based speech pathologists do go into schools every now and then and work with teachers, but we do find it quite tricky knowing how to support teachers. You know, they're busy, they've got lots on their plate. Adding another AAC, another thing such as AAC into their day just feels like too much and it's going to break the camel's back. Um, so I'm really keen to chat some more with you about supporting teachers, supporting the schools, and especially thinking about multiple different types of AAC as well that one teacher might have to be across. So can you tell me a little bit about what you've seen? What what have been some um, challenges that you've seen within the school system? What are some things that, yeah, some stories that you might have in terms of how you've been able to work within that system? Okay, well, let me start by saying that every, it's not just within the United States, it's not just that every state is very different from each other, but even within those states, every district is quite different from the from the neighboring district. So the things that I've experienced might be very, very different than someone who lives in another state or even another school district has experienced. Uh, so I know that where I am working, we have myself and I'm, and I cover the the entire district for assistive technology, which includes AAC evaluations, like AAC problem solving. I don't provide the therapy though. So there are speech paths within the schools that provide the therapy, but I provide training to the speech paths if they need it. Um, And then training with the teachers and the staff. And I've even started doing some uh, parent trainings as well post COVID. So that's been, that's, been really interesting and fun when the parents, you know, want to. That's one of the biggest, I'm probably going on a tangent now, but that's one of the biggest challenges that we have as school-based SLPs is that we frequently don't see the families. Um, It is very hard for us to get a family to come in because typically during the day they're at work, you know, and we're at school and they never the two shall meet or they do, they can come in, let's say they can come in because of their work schedule or just because of their schedule. Well, if you want the teacher to be there, you have to plan it for their prep period, assuming that they even have a prep period. And then things get very, very complicated. So scheduling um, and working with parents is very hard. And I also know that at least where I work, we have a very diverse population with a large number of families that um, do not speak English or do not speak it well. So 
then we have to add in the interpreter component there as well to try to make that connection. So that has been a huge challenge, I think, in the schools for me and others that I've talked to as well, is really getting families um, to, a lot of times they want to buy in, like they like the idea, but they just don't see how it's useful when their child is able to get their basic wants and needs met at home. You know, parents can understand a lot of what they want and what they need and what predict what's going to come next. Um, And so they don't always see the value of AAC. It's more of a burden for them than it is a help a lot of the time. And I can see, I mean, it's hard to be a parent. It's really hard to be a parent. And then if you add that extra component. Okay. But let's move over to the school side, because that's what you were actually asking me about. It is also very hard to be a teacher. I think that our teachers have some of the hardest jobs out there, both the general education teachers and the special education teachers. They have so much thrown on their plate and they're asked to be, you know, not only teachers, but social workers. They're trying to get kids set up with clothing, trying to get them doctor's appointments, trying to deal with sometimes very aggressive behaviors with or without support from their administrators. And they're, you know, doing it in 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 a society and environment where they don't get a ton of respect and support. We definitely are not. My area is not one where we get like lavished with teacher gifts. I think I well, I am the speech path. I'm not the teacher, but I think I've gotten five in 20 years. So like, you know, it's just it's. It can be very challenging and a lot of teachers that don't feel super passionate about the idea of children's voices and expressive communication being a key factor in education will be like, you know, that's great. And I think that's a great idea. I just can't put one more thing in, on my plate or in here. So something that's going on right now is I have several communicators with very complex bodies and we're trying to get them set up with either eye gaze or switch access. Um, and the equipment, I'm just floored at how much, and the teacher I'm working with is great and she loves all this and she has a very strong positive feeling towards AAC and communication. But just the equipment that I'm bringing into her room is it feels like it's taking up half her room and she's got like 15 to 20 kids like and this is all for two kids. It can be it can be very challenging for our teachers. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like you said, they're managing behaviors and they're educating. Like they're still trying to follow a curriculum and support the growth and learning and development of their students. And like you said, it can be 20 children in a room. And in Australia, it can be up to 32, 34 kids in a room. They are supporting and and all with various needs and at different levels. And it's a lot of, it's a big balancing act for, for our teachers. Right. Especially when there's outside equipment, when we're talking about aided communication, that's outside of the the child's body, because then there's just one more thing to cart around, one more thing to remember, one more thing to strap to the wheelchair. And and I don't, it probably is happening in Australia as well, but we have a huge shortage of instructional assistance right now, huge. And so there's never enough you know, personnel within the room and those that are there, there's a very high turnover. So it adds to the challenges of the job. Yeah. 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 It's very similar here as well. And that ever ongoing training for assistance is 
nonstop. It feels like you get someone all trained up and then they head off and you kind of are starting again, which is really hard for, for everybody involved. Yeah. Well, it's, a, you know, it's frequently a job that I'm like, that is one of the most underappreciated jobs out there because they work, have to work so hard for so little money and they should be they should be compensated. And for, for good reason, many of them are like, this isn't worth it and, and move on to, yeah. to something else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you have been working with teachers, especially bringing in lots of assistive technology, so this is for somebody that isn't using direct uh, direct access or they might need, they're not using sign, like they're using um, high tech or a low tech system that needs something to be brought along with them. It's not just what's on their bodies. Uh, how have you found working with teachers and what are some tips or tricks that have kind of helped integrate those systems that you've you found useful? So I'll tell you, I have not found anything magical yet. Um, I'm still searching <laughs> for the magic. magic. <laughs> yeah, I'm still searching for the magic. What I really, what I have done and what I'd like to do more of is I have provided some training to staff and for some of my schools, I'm able to do that like a once a month for 20 minutes where I just, you know, we gather the staff and myself and the speech path or just myself um, talk to the staff for these. These are the rooms that are the special ed rooms that have multiple kids in it that are using um, that of complex needs. And I feel like that overall is helpful, but it's only once a month and it's not front loaded at the beginning of the year where it sh- really should be. And then the other issue, of course, we have is there's only one or two of these slots available per month total. Um, And it's so some schools don't get anything all year and other schools have, you know, get the the once a month because they they were proactive at the beginning of the year. They're like, okay, let's schedule you now, 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 now. And I'm like, great, yeah. sounds great. And then another school's like, well, what about us? And I'm like, oh, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> figuring so. out training times is very tricky because the just the way the schedules just don't align. And even when the teacher might happen to be free, their educational assistants are never going to be free at that same time. And so- we're kind of trying to figure out how to piecemeal it and put it together. Um, and it's still a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. What sort of things do you go through in that training? So I have a couple of different trainings. I've done one over the years that's a lot more about what core vocabulary is, why core is important, um, and uh spending a lot of time on that. And then I have some trainings, uh, quite a few trainings in which we've just talked tons about modeling, you know, and aided language stimulation and showing how to use the core, especially the core boards that we instituted around the district and how to uh, practice using them and their importance. And then more recently, I was doing a training on just communicative functions and trying to help staff, especially our IAs who like are like, well, if they just could tell me that what they want, like we'd be all good trying to help kind of get beyond that and be like, you know, that's great. What you want, what that kid wants is great, but let's think broad. Let's think, you know, beyond just this year, where do we want them to be when they leave school at age 18 or 21 or 22 or whatever it is. And so we've started some training on kind of thinking big and and having more of a lifelong focus, which is really hard. I know after working in the elementary school for so long, I always wanted my kids to make progress now. And if they didn't, you know, if they weren't doing great by the time they left elementary school, I figured, oh, well, you know, it's too late. But now in my current role, I'm seeing them 
up to age 21. So some of the kids that I had in elementary that I was like, oh, you know, they, they're making really slow growth. And now I'm seeing them again at 18, 19, 20. And I'm like, they did grow. I mean, it, it was at their own pace. They, they didn't grow at the same pace as someone else, but they, they were growing. And to put that in perspective is really helpful. And it can be really hard for a teacher, especially if the teacher only has that student for one or two years, because it can feel really frustrating, the, the slow growth. And it's really important to help yourself just know this is just one tiny piece of the puzzle and that this one or two you know years that you're with this student might feel like it's a long time but really in the scope of this child's life it is you are just you know you're you're just so helpful in helping them eventually become who they are going to be yeah 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 i remember having a conversation with a bunch of teachers about a client that I was working with and they said, oh yeah, so we'll just, we'll give this thing a go for like a couple of months. And then if it's not working, we'll change it up. And I was like, how about we give it a go for a couple of years? Yeah. <laughs> I like, seriously, oh. I said that to some speech paths today. I love them, but they were new to where I was trying to teach them about partner assisted scanning with a light tech, you know, communication system. And they were yeah. like, okay, so we're going to be doing this for a little while. I said, you're going to be modeling this all year. But yep. like, I was like, I don't even expect this student to like know how to use it by the end of the year. Like yeah. maybe next year we'll really think we should expect more of a response from this student, but you're going to be modeling this for the year. And they're like, uh, uh, it's hard to think yeah. that far yeah. ahead. You want to think, oh, two weeks is going to be great. And then if they don't make progress, we'll move on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that longevity, like you're saying, like it's such a, for a teacher, if they're only with them for one or two years, it's such a small part of that person's life, but it's those constant, consistent, repetitive year on year on year growth. That is what helps that person when they do turn 18, 19, 21, that you see that change. And, and if we, if we focus only on the year that you're working with them, that's not that's not enough and i think you could probably relate that to education as well like a somebody in prep um so that's our first year of formal schooling in australia for four to five year olds if that's the you know their foundation skills that they're learning then and then year one is different and year two and year three and all the way up so i think being able to relate that to the education and and you know the, the bread and butter of what teachers do could help them to understand that we're, we're just laying foundations now and then we're starting to to grow on those over the years and what you do now is going to impact in you know 10 years time and helping people to to understand that could be helpful and I think it's really hard for teachers because they only have them for one or two years. And then we have these big breaks, like our summer break. I don't know what it's like in all parts of the world, but for us, you know, it's typically a two, two and a half month summer break. And so anything after about our spring break, which is around March, for most people, it's March, April, they are like, they don't want to try anything new because they're like, we're so close to the end of the year. And I totally get that. I've totally been there. But when you think about it from a lifelong perspective, you're like, no, you're not close to the end of the year because this kid still has, you know, 10, 12, 15 more years of education. So let's give them every second available. And, and that yeah. you, you can't really realize that until you kind of suck yourself back and give yourself perspective and really distance yourself. So that's been, that is a challenge that I think we're going to probably have forever. I'm not, I'm not sure there's a good solution to that one. 
Yeah, absolutely. That reminds me of another conversation with a group of teachers. They were saying that they've you know done so much modeling for the last 12 months so we're about to come up to our summer break which isn't quite as long it's about six six or eight weeks and they've done so much modeling the student has come so far and now they're going to go on this break go home and they know it doesn't get used or modeled Mm -hmm. at home much and so they're already anticipating that next year the person will probably have regressed a little bit in their skills and frustrated already that they're going to almost need to take some steps back and start again a little bit. So that's something that we've been working really closely with mum and dad about implementing at home and let's not drop these gains and at least maintain as many as we can rather than having this big regression over that time. And I think that's where it becomes tricky where if you're not also talking to the families, it is hard to get that merge across the two environments to help continue that person's growth. It's a huge challenge. You know, we do have some families that have the availability to come in and, and you know, are able to, to make more of that bridge. But it's just it's a it's a big challenge. And, you know, our families are, are often really struggling just to get by. And so it doesn't always happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And especially for us, it's the Christmas period too, that we break for summer. And so, you know, families are focused on Christmas and all of those fun things and going away. And so it does kind of become, you know, one of the things that aren't on the list for a while there. Yeah. Have you, in your time working with schools, have you seen anything work that does help bridge that gap between schools and families? Well, my current role, this is only my second year in my current role. So I can't tell you yet how to to bridge that gap. I know when I was working as a, just the, I'm going to call it a regular school speech path, but basically, I mean, I was a school speech path. I did everything, you know, including Oddcom. I would send home a lot of ideas for the summer. And for the most part, I don't feel like families did it, but um, I liked knowing that I was providing the opportunities for the families. And then the thing I always told families, and you know, and a lot of them really tried to do this was if nothing else, just read with your kids or talk about what they're what, you know, if they're watching videos, fine, I get it. I'm a parent. Kids got to watch videos sometimes, but then talk about it and, you know, find out what they're interested in and and really build some conversations from there. So just trying to make it as easy as possible is kind of the, the best we've done. Also encouraging families, if at all possible, to find some outside private speech therapy over the summer. But that's very challenging. Like you said before, there's huge wait lists for our private speech therapists and for our, our clinic based speech therapy. So many of them you know, just can't get in. Yeah. Yeah. And we have that same, same issue here as well at the moment. Have you found doing it, what we would call a stakeholders meeting where we'll get the speech pathologist and the parents and the teacher all in the room together and leading up to the start of a new term, usually we would find that is a good time to do it, to talk about, okay, what's everyone going to do? What between our terms, our terms are 10 weeks long and between each one, we have a two week break, except right at the end, which is our bigger break. And so at the end of one of the terms, we will usually try and organize a stakeholders meeting where we get everybody in the room. We talk about how progress has gone, 
what the parents can do for the upcoming school holidays and then what the focus is going to be for the next term. Is that something that you guys have access to that could be beneficial or would that be a scheduling nightmare? (laughs) Well, it sounds like the closest thing we have to that would be our annual IEPs, which, you know, are similar to that, but they are only once a year. And those can be great, but again, they're only once a year. I know that some families at their request or the school's request, we do meet about in the summertime right before school starts. So teachers come back a week or two before, you know, the students start. And so for some families, we'll have those meetings with the whole team before the school year begins. Um, But usually they are pretty dependent on the case manager who might in in many cases is going to be the special education teacher setting that up and thus far i mean i haven't been to very many of those sometimes the ones that really happen are actually the ones where the uh, parents are are pushing for it to happen because the parents are like this needs to happen before school starts and and then we make it happen but scheduling can be like you said very very hard especially like our speech pass will have 60 kids plus on their caseload and they can't possibly do that for every student yeah 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 we find that we'll cancel a one-on-one session to try and fit something like that in because and again this is more coming from the private sector where we have our regularly scheduled appointments that are once a week or once a fortnight and then we'll go okay well instead of doing our one-on-one this week let's do a meeting with the the school and and you and make sure we're all on the same page and OT come along and psychology and anyone else that's involved it just helps us to all stay on that same page moving forward I think it sounds amazing I you know if it's possible, it's making it possible, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other thing that we've found work really well over here is something called Story Park. Have you guys got, have you heard of that before? That doesn't sound yeah. familiar. No, so um, there's Story Park or Seesaw. So it's a an app. Okay, Seesaw, I've definitely heard of. Seesaw? Okay. Yeah. Keep yeah, going. I, was say, I think Seesaw might be more utilized in the States. Yeah, so we use that as well, that we'll sign all of our children up that we're working with and the teacher will join the parents will join um, again any of their other allied health professionals join and people just write little updates in there and send videos and kind of just collab in there which helps to keep everybody on the same page over the course of a year or however long between those stakeholder meetings just to help keep that up to date and keep everybody working together is that something that you've ever utilized before So I love that. Um, Our district has a lot of limitations, and I don't think it's just our district. I think it's many because of um, FERPA laws. So most Mm -hmm. messaging applications we are not able to use because of that. Um, And then when you add in the fact that speech and OT and PT are also health providers, then we also have to look at the HIPAA laws. So we have not used, you know, usually we're just using our like secure email for that kind of correspondence. But I do love that idea. And I would love to be able to send like videos and chats and and photos and things like that. But we have a lot of those laws and barriers going on. Yeah. 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 And that's exactly why most Australians will use Story Park because the services in Australia and that meets our privacy standards and all of those sorts of things, all those things you need to think about when you're thinking about how to to network and work with one another is as much as possible. Yeah. And do you find you utilize emails much in terms of corresponding and has that been helpful? Well, I think it is super helpful for the school district team. 
it is. And for the getting the family on board, it just depends. It depends on how often the family checks email. For some of our families, email is not preferred method of communication. It also depends on the home language of our family. You know, if English is not the home language, then some of our families will just you know, independently use things like Google Translate, you know, for things like Spanish. But if you have a Somali family, then we, then there's more barriers like Google Translate for Somali is, is not as good. So <laughs> yeah, a lot of that depends on, on those things. Um, but within the team, I think we have a lot of great correspondence between the, you know, speech PT, OT, and the special educators where most of the teams that I'm on are very, communicative in that way. But I will tell you, I don't know if this is true everywhere, but I have a very hard time communicating with many of the private speech therapists out there. What I think a few are amazing, absolutely amazing, but others, I feel like because corresponding with the school is not considered billable time, it's not worked into their schedule. And so there's little to no correspondence. In fact, usually I don't even know that a child is receiving outside services. No one tells us, no one tells us. The parents don't tell us, the the hospitals don't tell us, the private, you know. And so every once in a while I've had, luckily this doesn't happen too much, but I've had at least once a child that we didn't even know was getting outside services all of a sudden show up to school with an OGCOM device. And no, we had provided no input, even though we're the ones who are actually working with the child, you know, five days a week. Yeah. Yeah. So it can be very frustrating, but I mean, there's a few that are amazing out there. And part of it is I'm learning how to build relationships with those people so that they know that they can just, you know, get in contact with me. Yeah. 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 And I think that's the thing. Everyone is so, so busy. (laughs) The whole world is busy and being able to keep on top of who's involved and who's not and all those networking opportunities and that sort of thing can, can be trickier. And that's really interesting. Over here, we, we would consider liaising with the school a billable activity. And so it is something that is prioritized as part of our oh, that would be service wonderful. delivery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I called I called a private practice just the other day because I wanted to coordinate with them. They really gave me the runaround and it's been like two or three days and I still haven't heard back. And I don't know if I'm going to hear back. I really don't. They made yeah. it sound like, oh, you want them to get hold of the school? And <laughs> I, I, it kind of left me feeling icky. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's no good. We do have a question that's come through. So with the AAC device or modalities that you've been trialing, do they travel between home and school each day, including trial devices, not just something that somebody owns? Can you tell us about how that works? Yeah. So this is an interesting one that seems to be very different from district to district. And the the legal issues involved are very unclear to me. In my district at this time, this doesn't mean it's going to be forever, At this time, if it's a school-owned, especially trial device, because we try to help families get their own device for their kids through insurance or through grants or or something like that, but the school-owned ones stay at school. They do not go home. And we have a lot, and there's a couple of reasons behind that. One, I've got about 10 iPads total in the district, and so I cannot let them leave the school. The other is that we have found every once in a while when an iPad does go home that the battery drains and guided access goes off and then they it just becomes a fun tablet. And and then a third reason is that, well, actually there's four. A third reason is that we do have a lot of 
families that move in and out of the district. And so we would have a really hard time keeping track of our devices. And then the last is that the, the parent school communication, like I said before, it's very tricky. It's very hard to train families. And so when it, especially a school owned device gets, goes home, we usually don't, families aren't using it for communication. And so yeah. And then I just got a device. This was a personally owned. This wasn't even a school owned, but I got a device returned. I had just helped this family get this personally owned device over the summer. And, you know, in October it comes and it, this, it's an iPad based device and just shattered, just shattered mm. in a million pieces. And I was like, oh, and then mom's like, you know what, when we get this fixed, let's just leave it at school. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so mom said that and I said yeah I think that's probably a good idea right now yeah 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 that's a forever challenge is uh, it's staying intact <laughs> yeah um, but I do I work with some companies right now that provide us loaners as part of the evaluation process uh, for insurance funded and my favorite part about that is that I those go home I'm like I school doesn't own this you can take this home. And then I'm super excited because I want the families to see, to kind of explore. This is while we're still in the trial phase. And I want to see like what family buy-in is like, and if they're excited about this, you know, device as well. So I do go out of my way to make sure before we get anything funded that they get a device that they can bring home for as long as possible. And the company, it just depends on what the insurance says. Our insurance system here in the U.S. is very wonky. Yeah. 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 I was just going to ask that about device suppliers and whether they do any loan agreements or loan arrangements where you can send a device or they'll send out a device where you can hire it for, you know, a couple of weeks or up to four weeks. And yeah, it go between all the different environments before you do a personally owned Yeah. So the companies that I've been working with um, here, they basically have either a, you know, two week max trial time, or they base it off of um, what the insurance requires. So some insurance plans say there must be a one week trial. And so the the uh, device company will only send it for a week. They say insurance only once a week. So we're only sending it for a week. Um, whereas others say we want four weeks. And so then they'll send it for four weeks. And so they really just send the minimum amount of time that's needed for the insurance. And I've run into a problem recently where I have a student where the insurance doesn't require any any trial with the device. I mean, they require an evaluation, but not like an extended trial. And so the company is like, well, we're not going to send you one because insurance doesn't need it. And I'm like, no, no, no. I, I can't have a parent like making these like decisions about what she wants for her son when we can't even send, you know. So um, hopefully they're sending me one for a week. <laughs> Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> when you when you do your trials, especially if they're only for a week, what sort of things are you looking for to help decide whether it's uh, the right system or not? Because it's not a so, very long time. Right. I'm doing my trials much more than a week. Right. I am usually giving the kids access to uh, almost always a iPad with an app on it or multiple apps over time for several months. The trial in terms of just sending it home, that's where it's really limited because I really depend on the companies to provide those for that extended trial. Within the schools, I am having the teachers 
If they're in like a special ed classroom and then the speech pathologists work on modeling and giving them opportunities. And then what I do is I actually just take the data for the trials. So I do it all based on language samples. I have the speech path do some kind of fun activity with the child and I do a language, a five minute language sample. And then I compare, you know, two weeks later, I'll do a five minute language sample using maybe a different system or maybe using the same system again to see if any difference is made. And then I keep track of all their verbal communication as well as their aided AAC communication. And I basically am like, did it help? Did the aided AAC make a difference in their ability to communicate? And how much buy-in did that student have in the system as they were using it? And every once in a while, I'm like, you know what? I don't think we want to go this route right now. This student is not bought in. This is like, it, it just doesn't seem to be quite the right match for them right now. Maybe let's try something else. Um, And every once in a while, someone will surprise me where they, I'm like, they aren't bought in, they aren't bought in. And then we try a different uh, app or a different side and all of a sudden they love it. And I'm like, what? I mean, wasn't that different? I don't know what changed, but um, yeah, yeah, sometimes they, they will surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because to us, the systems aren't all that different. Like they might be no, they're not. a little yeah. different. <laughs> might look a little different, but they're all like same, same basically in our minds. <laughs> but for yeah, the, for I know. Uses, Although they're like, this one I love. The rest, scrap them all. <laughs> Although communication partners often are like, oh, that one looks scary. You know, there's certain yeah. ones that communication partners get um, teachers and speech paths and stuff are like, that looks yeah. too hard. Yeah. Even though they're not all that different from each other. No, <laughs> not at all. At Toby Dynavox, it is our mission to empower people to do what they once did or never thought possible. As a global leader in assistive communication, we strive to provide innovative solutions, support, and resources to individuals, caregivers, and our professional partners. With a variety of hardware and software for diverse users of all age groups and with various diagnoses, we are your partner throughout the AAC journey and beyond. Learn more at tobydynavox.com. Okay, so going back to su- supporting the teachers in the classroom. So you were saying before that you have a core vocab board that each of your teachers in the districts have. Is that right? Right. So we have a core vocab board that we have everywhere. It's become a system-wide thing. So we have poster size in the classrooms, individual size, like on student desks, lanyard size that go around the, you know, that teachers are in theory wearing around them, you know, for the playground or, or this or that. And then we are using that ideally, ideally the teachers are and the IAs are using that throughout the day to model their language and provide a visual system, communication system for their students. In addition, I'm trying to get at least one high tech, like kind of sampler device in each of our special ed classrooms so that there's at least one to kind of pass around so that multiple kids can be trying it. And most of our rooms do have several AAC users who have personally owned devices as well. So one thing that we found is that the kids who already have a personally owned device provide a great model for other kids who do not yet have a personally owned device. Where we run into some trouble is our kids who are in general education classes who have a personally owned device What often 
not always, but often happens is that they feel very self-conscious using their device when no one else in the classroom is using anything outside of their spoken voice for communicating. And so that's been interesting with our little kids. You know, the little kids are much more understanding. Like I do a class training and like give them like light tech versions of the board and they think it's super cool. But our older kids are really hesitant to bring them out and feel very other and and awkward and outside of like class training and a lot of support for, you know, all individuals are different and we all have different needs. That has been a challenge. And I, I, I haven't solved that challenge yet. And I think that's one of those things that it's just going to depend on the, the student. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And with your core vocab boards, how many cells or symbols do you have on a board? Oh. Rough? Like, do you have a standard? Yeah, there's 60. There's 60 cells. Yeah. And I did also forget to say when I was the speech path in the one elementary school, so I had two to three classrooms at any given time that were full of kids with complex needs. And I was in those rooms every day or almost every day meeting the circle time and modeling for the teachers and the IAs, like how to use the white tech core vocabulary and how to use communication partner strategies throughout that time. So I'd like to think that that kind of rolled over and they were able to start using those skills during the times when I wasn't in the room as well. But I know some other speech pathologists in our district are continuing to do that kind of thing as well, where they are modeling with whole class instruction on a regular basis, like multiple times a week. Yeah. Yeah. And with the, with the boards, whereabouts did you get them? Is that something you made yourself? Is it something that you've found online? Where the boards would other people be able to find them. Yeah. Um, so the the boards that we're using at this particular moment are just the light tech version of the Word Power 60 that we just got from the Saltillo website. We use the 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 flip book version so that there's fringe vocabulary. Ideally, we would have it um, customized so that the top, the very top row of the fringe has that child's, you know, like favorite words and interests and things like that. The reality is nobody has had time, at least this year, to to customize that so personally. But that would be that would be like the icing on top. I would really be happy if that ever happened. Yeah, 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 for sure. It, again, that time factor just gets us all the time. And when you are working with in those classrooms that do have multiple users that might have different personal devices, and they're also trialing different devices. How do you find supporting the teachers to be able to model, like go from a, a lamp device to a pod device to a book to to using ASL? How have you supported that for teachers? You know, it's really hard. The, most of the teachers, they're like, okay, I kind of get this one, this one system, but have a really hard time with other systems. So we're trying, we're still trying to expose our teachers to more than one system. So my goal is like every month for those for those rooms that are getting a monthly training, bringing in the different systems and be like, okay, Johnny uses this system. Let's practice finding words on it. You know, Katie uses this system. Let's practice finding words on it and getting them used to the different systems. Luckily or unluckily, depending on how you look at it, we mainly have just two systems in the district. And so there's not a huge amount of variation. But then every once in a while, some kid will show up with a third system. And I'm like, oh, shoot. Now I got to learn this too. Let alone the teachers, yeah. <laughs> um, because there are so many things out there, you know, like it, it, potentially you could 
have an infinite number of systems come in. Um, and that's a real challenge when we don't have the time to, to, to have IAs actually like flip around and find different words. I know one time when I was doing a training, I said, all we're going to do is find, you know, 20 words on this particular device. And they were like, oh, well, thank goodness. I never know, you know, I've never had time to sit down and actually even look for these words. Yeah. Yeah. And we find here that schools take a a bit of a whole school approach. So the whole school will implement pod or the whole school will implement Proloquitico or something like that. And what we find challenging is if we have a user that's using something different. So they might use LAMP, for example, and they'll go into the school and the school's like, oh, no, no, we do pod or we do Proloquitico or whatever they do. And we find it quite challenging to say, well, this is this person's language system and their voice, and we do need to allow people to use their voice and what they're used to. Have you ever come across that? Yes, but I now I have to ask you a question. If you were part of the team that was coming up with, you know, evaluating that student were you taking into account what the school was doing to begin with? Because this is where I, we've had the problems where they don't take into account what the school is mostly familiar with and then communication partners. I mean, because these kids are in the school five days a week, we want for the most part, if an individual can use the system that the communication partners are used to, you know, for the most part, we do want them to use that. And there will be always be exceptions, of course, of course, but But when some outside person who doesn't work with the communication partners who are working with them every day comes in and just kind of was like, well, I know this system, so this is what we're going to use. It definitely can be challenging. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you're exactly right. Having that holistic approach and going, well, what are the schools using? And, you know, we might see somebody when they're quite little before they're in school and 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 that 100 percent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you're like three years old and you're like, we need to give this kid a system for sure. But when they're nine and we're already working with them and then they're like, you know, some outside person who's never corresponded with the schools, it's, it is very hard to get that collaboration. Like I said before, it's not billable time for our private insurers. And so and, and the school speech files usually don't have time either. I'm in a luxury position right now where I can make those phone calls and, and send those emails. Yeah. So it's something that we'll, we consider and we'll say to families, where are you thinking about sending them to school? So we can get a bit of an idea of, you know, where that, where that child's headed and what type of systems that school is used to. So we can start to think about what to put in place now and into the future. But then you have people that move from a different school and Absolutely. all of those things and uh, yeah, makes those exceptions oh, yeah. to the rule. Oh, always. <laughs> and, and we do need to be flexible too. I mean, like yeah. it's not fair to say every child, if you're in a pod school, for example, it's not fair to say, well, most people in this school use pods. You have to use pod. I think it's more realistic to say most people in this you know, school use pod. So let's try pod first. And then if that doesn't work, then we say, okay, so let's try something else now. Yeah. 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 Fully agree. And so have you ever had the, like a resistance from a teacher or a assistant that says, nope, I know how to use pod. I'm not using anything else. And have you, have you ever come across that? And how did you respond? I've never had someone just outwardly say no, but I've definitely come across a lot of people in the past who just kind of, they're like, that's intimidating. So I'm just not even going to really try. So it's kind of like a, 
I don't have time for that. Like that's, that's too tricky for me without actually ever saying the words. Yeah. And it's a huge barrier because it's a, it's a attitude or lack of flexibility barrier. And that that's just really challenging until individuals can see the potential of communication for, for those students, then we're just going to have a lot of hurdles, which is why on my training this year, I actually started my whole training with the whole idea of what is communication? Why is communication important to try to provide some of that foundational knowledge so that hopefully there's less resistance, even when there's Mm -hmm. challenging new things that come in like an eye gaze device in a different system, you know, like, which is what I'm brought into the high school right now. Yeah. (laughs) And when you're doing the training around those foundational belief systems, I guess, is there any activities that you do or any ways that you word things that kind of give people a bit of an aha moment? I mean, I created a workbook and I have, and we go through it together as the workbook. I, you know, like to give analogies of learning a second language, like how much time and space it takes, um, the facts that we all come into the situation from a different background and, and trying to, for the most part, to help them start thinking about their individual students as well. So I'd be like, okay, think of a student you currently work with so that, you know, the, the theoretical can start to become a little more practical. And that seems to be helpful for some of our adults. It's really interesting. Adult learning theory is this whole like offshoot that I didn't even know about until a few years ago, but adults don't learn exactly the same as kids. It's similar. It's same, but different, right? You know, there, there are some things that adults really need to do. Like what they found is a lot of role play and things. And adults don't want to like, right. We feel super self-conscious. Yeah. They hate (laughs) role play, but the research shows it works. You know, yeah. <laughs> whereas kids don't always need to do role play because their whole life is like pretend. And then so they don't need to do extra role play. It's, yeah, and it's but- awkward because you don't have that same, embar- you have embarrassment with adults that you don't always have with kids also. So some resistance is just because adults feel embarrassed about trying something new. Yeah. And scared to get it wrong. Like what happens if I get it wrong and fail? Yeah. Is a, is a big undertone. Yeah. But that body-based learning is something that's so important for adults to learn and really like not just theoretically get it, but like, you know, mind, soul and body get it and be like, yes, I understand why communication is so important and why we're doing this. Because I think a lot of the time, theoretically, we can understand something and we're like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But then when you actually go to put it into practice, you're like, oh, I don't really get it. So that body-based learning can be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, But but it is challenging. It's challenging for adults. You know, it's challenging for adults to even be willing to to give it a try sometimes. And I know I'm one of those people that are like, okay, everyone stand up and go to the other side of the room. I'm not standing up yet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I will go to our attendees that are here today. If you have any questions, can you please put them into the chat box for me? And while we're collecting those, Sherry, if you can let us know what are your main tips or tricks for people that are getting started in AAC or 
finding it challenging to do AAC within the school system? What are three key points or something like that that you would recommend? It doesn't have to be three. What are your tips and tricks? <laughs> okay, so my first is that it's really important that we as speech paths or as special educators or as OTs or PTs or family members, anyone who is a communication partner, really learn the skills that are needed to help our individuals with complex communication needs. And there's lots of different acronyms and ways of saying it. And I can't remember more than four letters at a time. So I came up with a four letter acronym. It doesn't incorporate everything, but it gets the main ones. And that's my WISE acronym. So the first is that we need to make sure that we wait and have a really long expectant pause while our individuals who have trouble processing information, not only process, but then figure out a way to get it from their brain to either their mouth or their hands or their foot or however they're going to be accessing their communication system. The second is invite. We want to make sure to invite our individuals to communicate with us. So many individuals with complex communication needs are talked at or talked over, but not really talked to beyond what do you want? So really inviting them into situations where communication is fun. The next is S and that's for show. And that's where the modeling comes in, where the visual portion of the communication, because we know that many of our individuals with complex communication needs really struggle with the auditory part. So let's give them the extra bonus of the visuals, but we have to show them to them, right? That little stick figure from Boardmaker makes no sense until you're taught it and you see it and are pointed to it and, and see it in action over and over and over again. And then the E is for expand. So anything that your individual does communicate, expand it to make a little bit more. It's kind of, you know, the Vygotsky's uh, zone of proximal development-ish type idea. We're just going to expand to help individuals grow because that's our job is to help them grow just a little bit more by making things a little bit more challenging. So that's my number one tip is to learn how to be a really good communication partner to our students who have complex needs. And then my second tip, and this is more learned just recently, is it is okay to get yourself an iPad, get some apps. Some of the companies will provide speech paths with free apps if they're doing trials, or hopefully you can get your school district to pay for like two apps, you know, two of the, the big ones for your area or three. Hopefully, I know it's really challenging. We definitely have budget issues where I, in my part of the country, and just be like, okay, let's let's try this out and just play around with it and get comfortable with it and, and learn how to use it with the students so that um, then they can start playing. And sometimes I will literally walk into a room and I'll put my, I always put my iPad on guided access. That's tip number three. I will put my iPad down in front of a student and, and then I'll just walk away. It'll be open to the app and I'll like just walk away. And I'll be like, what are they going to do? And some of them just pick it right up and they go, because they've seen their friends using, you know, something similar. Yeah. And that, okay. So then this goes with Maria's question. Do you only allow adults and teachers to be a model or do you allow other students? I absolutely allow other students in the class and I allow them to use their communication device with, if it's a personally owned, it has to be with their permission. So it's the same thing that I would say, like, you don't touch someone else's stuff without their permission. If they let them use their device, then I'm all for it. Share and share alike. But again, some people, most, most of my students are like, sure, whatever, it's all good. A few are like, don't touch my thing. And in that case, I provide them with a light tech option to, to model with. 
Yeah, I've definitely had the same where someone is, this is my voice, this is my device, nobody else is touching it. And we've got to respect that because it is their voice and their way of communicating. And yeah, I love that idea of give the students who want to get involved and who want to model a different system or a light tech version of it so that they can can still model and engage with the person using the system that they know. That's a really cool idea. Any other tips? No, I mean, as much as possible, I love it when we can normalize our our tools. So I'm always telling my educators and my families, as much as you possibly can, make what your student is using as normal as possible. It shouldn't feel like this is weird or odd. That's why I like people to use it themselves, like an OGCOM device, use it yourself with your student's permission, but use it yourself. And if you can, I would have little AAC, I once, okay. So one year I had these three girls that were all the same age. They were all using similar AAC apps and they were all very social. And I had them in a little AAC club and I felt like it was fabulous because it was the norm. I was the only person in that club who was not an AAC user and I had my device. So I tried to be an AAC user. So whenever possible, I I really love it when people are showing off and normalizing the tools because that's how people, that's how a lot of kids feel more comfortable is when they feel like, oh yeah, this is okay. This is normal. Yeah, everyone's doing it, which is why I think the iPad apps are so good because the iPad doesn't look any different. Everybody has an iPad. Every yeah. man and his dog has an iPad, so that helps. And and like you said, for speech pathologists, a lot of the time the developers will give you a free download code if you contact them so that you can trial it with your, your students and your clients. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot more competition now for AAC funding companies. And so some of them will provide you with a device as well. If they know that you're in the evaluation process, I have at least one company who will not be named, but they are like, here's a device. You can use it for the year because they're trying to sell their product. And so even if you're like, my school will not get me any devices, I totally get that. But sometimes these companies will, and there's a lot of companies out there just dig around. Yeah. Did not know that. That's awesome to know. And how about for somebody wanting to go do more learning about AAC? Are there any courses or books or resources that you know of that you were like, this was, this was excellent for me? There's everything. There's so much available right now. I Probably wouldn't move across the country, you know, 20 some years ago if this stuff had been available. There's tons of webinars out there. Some are free, actually a lot are free, some are paid. There's some great podcasts there. I mean, every week you could be learning something. And then if you just get on some of the big companies, we'll send you, like I know, AbleNet and Don Johnston and Saltillo. If you're on their email list, they will send you webinar updates you know, free webinar, most of them are free, like weekly, you get you'll get inundated with information about webinars to learn more. Yeah. Thank you so much. That has been such a useful conversation. And I think we've all can take away some tips and tricks that we can start to use in the school system, how to support our teachers, how to bridge that gap, or at least consider bridging the gap between school and home and trialing a few different things to see what works. So thank you so much for joining us. 
throughout the rest of the series, just so everybody knows, in our next episode, we're meeting with representatives from Agoski and Isaac, who are professional bodies that support speech pathologists using AAC. And we also have Jeff Steppen, a speech-language pathologist from America, coming to talk about some professional supports as well for speech pathologists implementing AAC. And if you have any questions after today's episode or at any time into the future, if you're like, oh, what, you know, what about this or what was that idea or anything like that, feel free, shoot me an email at kate, K-A-T-E, at speechease, S-P-E-E-C-H-E-A-S-E dot net dot A-U. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, Sherry. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for tonight's course. To complete the course, you must log into your account and complete the quiz and the survey. If you have indicated that you're a part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete mailing address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Please note that if this information is missing, we cannot submit to ASHA on your behalf. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you next time. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word SLP Learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today.